Mythos Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to this week's episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast, and this is episode number eight of our season five. Yes, already episode eight. Well, we are at the end of August, also, it's August the 30th today. The title of today's episode is Witchy Scholar, and I will be talking to Amy Hale. My name is Rudolf, I am your host, and I'm talking to you from the outskirts of the lovely Austrian capital of Vienna. This is the Thoth Hermes podcast. We are already almost at 80 episodes, and if you want to find out more about us, if this is the first time that you are in this show listening, um, well, go to our website, which is www.thoshermes.com, that is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com and you can find out everything about us there. Also about our uh, show notes, about all the show notes from the previous episodes. You can listen to all the episodes that have been done by us in the past. And you can also, of course, send me feedback. Feedback via a voicemail option on the website via contact form there or classically through email info at thoshermes.com. You can also use our Twitter or Facebook pages and channels to send me a message and to get the latest information from us. I'm welcoming everyone also who is back to this show and more and more of you are coming back to the show and that makes me really happy. I have to tell you that last Sunday, not only we had a really nice episode that we launched with Georgia van Ralte, but also we did our first lecture of the new Thos Hermes Academy, where Carl Abrahamson talked about individuation magic, and it was a great experience. Uh, those of you who have joined there, who have attended that lecture and also discussed with us, and that's the especially interesting thing that you cannot only listen to a lecture of an important occultist live there, but you can also take part live in discussion uh, and also ask your questions after the lecture. So this was the first time we did that. It was really great. Uh, and I thank everyone who attended and especially, of course, to Carl, who really had a great lecture. And well, in two weeks from now, on September the 13th, there will be our next one. Angel Millar is our lecturer on September 13th. Others in the future that has already been planned is Fratri UD, the great Fratri UD. There will also be David Harrison talking about a special part of uh, Freemasonry's history. And there will be David Beth. So quite a lineup. Um, do go on the Thoth Hermes website and click on Thoth Hermes Academy 
to find out all about it and to book your tickets for that. Right. You know what's coming is now the Patreon challenge that's coming, of course. Yes, the Patreon challenge is still up. And um, as we have more and more listeners each week, which makes me extremely happy, well, the challenge gets a bit harder for you because the challenge is that as soon as we have 4% of our eight-week average listener number, then we will stop doing, I will stop doing publicity for becoming a patron here. Um, but, you know, it is really needed that you support this podcast, the support, the podcast which costs money to make, to produce. It's not for my own gain. It's just to make this viable and to produce the podcast. And therefore, yes, please, if you enjoy this show, if you like what you hear, if you are a regular listener, please go to the patreon.com site and check out Thoughts Hermes. Uh, become a patron there or... It's even easier if you go on the Thoth Hermes website, thoughthermes.com, you will find here and there a Patreon button. Just click on it and you will be carried immediately to the Patreon site. And if Patreon is not the thing you like, if you'd rather give a one-off donation, that's also possible. From our website, there is a donation button and there you can do a one-off gift. Thank you all who already have become patrons and have made donations. And all of you who enjoy the show once again, please go and help to keep it up. Thank you. Well, this week's music, uh, you know, I play music every time in this show. This week's music is also something rather special because uh, we have a listener here who is from Luxembourg in Europe. His name is David Ianni, and David Ianni is quite a well-known composer and pianist. And he has contacted me and he has allowed us to, allowed me to, use some of his music for the show. So today we are going to hear one of his works. Uh, David Yanni is a critically acclaimed classical pianist, actually, and he has composed more than 120 works. Many of them are also rather, um, well, kind of sacred and dreamy and, um, well, you judge by yourself. His music is highly sophisticated and even though it's rooted in the tradition of classical music, it's really accessible and uh, touching. So we're gonna hear an entire an entire composition by him, which is in five movements, five parts, and uh, we hear the two movements, the two first movements now uh, before we go into the interview. And. The work that we're here from is called The Cloud of Unknowing. And the first two movements that we are now going to listen to are called Into Silence and Beyond the Stars. I think you're really going to enjoy this The Cloud of Unknowing by David Yanni. Enjoy.
you were listening to the first two movements of a work by David Yanni, which is called The Cloud of Unknowing, and those first two movements were called Into Silence and Beyond the Stars. We're going to hear the rest of this work during this show. If you hear that little strange sound from time to time here in the background, I'm sorry about that. Somebody is cutting wood with a machine out there. And, well, I can't wait for another three hours that he's finished. <laughs> so uh, I'm sorry if that bothers you. I don't think it will be too loud, though, I hope. Right. So now let's meet Amy Hale. And I'm sure also that many of you do know Amy Hale already um, because she has been around um, writing, especially on her blogs, interesting, very interesting work. Amy Hale is an anthropologist and a writer who is specializing in the occult, the esoteric and other liminal people, places and things, as she says herself. Um, she has a PhD in folklore and mythology from UCLA and her research and writing ranges from contemporary Cornwall to modern pagan and occult subcultures. And uh, she is also very much interested in relation of politics and the occult. She is also active herself. That's why we called that show Witchy Scholar, because more and more scholars that um, tell us that they are also active and that's a very, very good thing. I'm not going to tell you more because Amy is going to tell herself a lot about that in this show. Um, the actual reason why we meet here to meet her today is that she has recently published a book on Ethel Colquhoun, the occultist and artist from Great Britain. And um, that book has just been released. It's brand new. And as always now, I'm going to read you a little excerpt from her book and we will open the interview with that reading, which I will do now from Ithel Calhoun by Amy Hale. It's Ithel. It was her middle name. Her given name was Margaret Ithel Calhoun, and Ithel was also one of her mother's middle names. Perhaps this was a small way of asserting her mother's influence in her line. It's not a form of Ethel. Colquhoun claimed Benedict Ithel, deputy treasurer of Chelsea Hospital in the 17th century, as a maternal ancestor, and at one stage she was working on a biography of him. It never materialized, but the name carries on, perpetually eluding correct pronunciation. Still, Peggy would never have suited her. Ithel Colquhoun was a challenging personality. I have also come to believe that she was the most consequential, creative and committed female occultist of the 20th century and occultists don't exactly have a reputation for being easy to deal with. When I first learned of Calhoun, it was the year 2000. I had been working in Cornwall as an anthropologist for six years, studying everything Celtic, Cornish nationalists, Cornish language, fanatics, pagans, druids and King Arthur enthusiasts, frequently in exquisite combinations. I was told of Calhoun over lunch with a friend in Penzance. No one has told you about Ethel Calhoun? Never heard of her, who is she? 
She was a woman surrealist who died in 1988. Eccentric. Really into the occult and witchcraft. She was a druid. Lived right up the hill from Newlin. Some people around here still remember her, but she fell out with most people. The Tate has all her papers. She's right up your alley. I was surprised I hadn't heard of her before. Paganism and the occult history of Cornwall was a huge interest of mine. I had done part of my PhD on it, but had never heard of Isil Calhoun. My friend, another American about 25 years my senior, ran the West Cornwall Art Archive, which documented the art scenes that dominated the cultural history of much of late 19th and early 20th century West Cornwall. She is an incredible human database of artistic activity there. Although surrealism as a movement has had one or two notable historical moments in Cornwall, such as the 1937 surrealist gathering in Falmouth, surrealism was never a significant part of the story of the artists' colonies in St. Ives and Newlyn, so I wondered what caused this particular surrealist to settle there. Well, if you want to know more about that and know more about Isil Calhoun, you better get that book and you'll find a way to purchase this also on the show notes of this show. But now, let's go to Atlanta, Georgia, where Amy Hale lives and where I have interviewed her. And we're going to hear very, very interesting things a lot about herself, about Amy, about her background, about witchcraft in her use, about politics and the occult and why she became a scholar in that field and why it's important that anthropologists, just as history, historians of religion, mix together to talk more about esotericism and the occult. Well, no longer wait. Let's go and meet Amy Hale. Here comes the interview. Tonight, I have the pleasure to welcome here on the Thoth Hermes podcast, Amy Hale. Amy, who speaks to us from Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, Amy, who is a scholar, a scholar of the occult. Well, she'll talk us, to us more about that. She's a scholar of the occult, of the esoteric and marginal cultures. And I think also, especially the marginal, is a very important part of her studies. Um, but she's going to tell us much more about that herself, of course. And for now, I I would like to say a heartily welcome to Amy Hale. Good evening. Hi, Rudolf. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real delight to be here. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving us your time. The immediate, um, well, I might not say reason, but the, the, the moment why we speak now is that you recently uh, pu published a book uh, about uh, Scottish, or, uh, well, or English or UK. You'll tell us more about her, painter Ethel Calhoun. Uh, we talk about her later in this, in this interview. But uh, before we go into that, we talk about Amy Hale because that's the main reason why we are here. Amy, we've had lately a few people who are scholars of the occult, so to speak, in, in this show. This has been a trend lately, and I'm very happy about that because, in my opinion, it gives more seriousness to the matter. It shows that the study of the occult and uh, of the esoteric worlds, the Western traditions, is something that must be taken serious in the 21st century as well. And um, uh, but 
maybe you can tell us before we talk about yourself and go a bit in depth why you chose that path um how you see the matter is today uh, being a scholar of the occult is that still something uh, very exceptional or has it become more normal how do you how do you see that situation at the moment i think that's a, a great set of questions rudolph and i i do think i do actually believe that the landscape for people who uh, want to study the the esoteric and the occult i do believe that it's changing um, for a number of reasons that we'll get into uh, regarding the art world, I think that we see some shifts in the way that people understand people's spiritual and religious experiences. Um, I think that we have the tools now to look at the occult as part of a wider landscape of religious traditions and spiritual perspectives. This is something now I come at this from not an historic background or a literary background like my colleagues, Georgia and Henrik. Mm. I come at this. My doctorate is in folklore. I'm an ethnographer. And so coming at it from the perspective of ethnography, from anthropology, from folklore, none of what we would find in the occult or Western esoteric traditions, you know, as you probably know, there's some debate about how we use the term Western in Western esoteric traditions. I'm, on, I'm in favor of dropping it myself. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, that limits us. But when we look at the range of what we would consider to be esoteric behaviors, beliefs, practices, these are common throughout the rest of the world. And so there's no reason why we shouldn't acknowledge the deep and rich history of these traditions and practices within Europe, uh, the Americas, uh, Western diaspora. Uh, I think that, that the fact that we haven't looked at those It historically is is a real problem. And so I think that, that we're able to look at this now within the wider scope of, of religious practices. Why do you think this is a problem that interests me? Because I, I share that opinion, but I would be interested what the problem that we have not looked at this historically, uh, where the problem really lies in your point of view. So I actually think the reason that we uh, we haven't looked at this historically, and I've actually written about this in an essay uh, a number of years ago um, called White Men Can't Dance was mm -hmm. the title of the essay. I actually think that it is born in our own. I think it's it actually comes from a, a very racist perspective in the scholarship. Mm -hmm. Because when we have historically looked at some of these uh, behaviors, beliefs, practices, this complex of, of esoterica and the occult, when we look at them in other cultures, you know, say we look at uh, African necromancy or divination in, say, India or China, as ethnographers, we would treat those subjects with merit and with respect. If we look at people dressing extravagantly and doing ecstatic rituals in non-Western cultures, 
obviously there's a history of that kind of scholarship and it's been understood and respected. And when scholars from the West go to those cultures, even if the dynamic can be problematic, let's acknowledge that, uh, we, we still, we don't give the, the ethnographer any, any crap for going and doing that. It's a thing that you do. Mm. But when we turn that, when we turn that kind of examination on our own culture, all of a sudden, Hey, there's a problem. You know, we, we don't want to acknowledge that uh, that we think that, in fact, that these are irrational, that these are problematic, that maybe white people shouldn't be behaving that way. Right. And I think that, unfortunately, that's the long and the short of it, is that we think that these kind of behaviors are unseemly. They don't fit into this discourse that we have that I think is exceptionally flawed of this enlightenment paradigm that says that, that well, you know, the enlightenment came along and then everybody became secular. No, it's just not true. It's absolutely not true. Even when we want to talk about the fact that uh, in some countries, particularly in continental Europe, there has been a certainly a, a much larger embrace of, of secular institutions than there have, say, in the United States. Uh, I, it's, people themselves have a range of responses, creative responses, to the world and to their experience. And esoteric practice falls into that. And I think that we can't erase that. We see its significance. We see the artifacts that come from it. People talk about their practice. We need to look at this now within a wide range of, of human experience. And I think that that's what we're doing now. I think the other thing that's changing this is that we are now accepting more broadly the kind of methodological issues that in anthropology and ethnography that we have understood for a long time is that there is a relationship between uh, the, the, the researcher and that which is researched and that there is, even if you're not part of that tradition, there is subjective experience that happens and that we work that into the methodology in a way that is sympathetic, yet that is still empirically sound. And I think as we start to explore some of these new methodologies within, well, they're not new methodologies at all, but within yeah. uh, what we call esoteric studies, they are not as frequently used. And I think that this, this, this is now bringing a kind of richness to the field, whereas before there might have been some resistance. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting discourse because, um, of course, you said we should drop the term Western esoteric tradition and uh, I completely understand what you mean. And, and we had that similar discussion with Henry Bogdan as well lately, um, because he's also very much in favor of what you say. And um, but what you say, wouldn't that also mean, I mean, not the Western or Eastern thing or the Western whatever thing, but um, the, uh, the, the different approaches that are being taken to the esoteric world and the esoteric research, wouldn't that mean that it would be good nowadays almost to create maybe not the faculty, that's too much to be said, but a, a, a study course, a field, its own field for esoteric research, where ethnographers, as well as historians of religion and other fields, why not the natural sciences partly as well, uh, would be part of that new, of that new field rather than everyone study esoteric and occult um, 
parts in their own departments. What, how, how do you, how would you see that? Are, are those studies better placed in the different departments or should there be a department on its own? I, I think again, that's a really great and kind of timely question. Uh, of course, we do have a couple of different departments of esoteric studies. Uh, obviously, Amsterdam, it's mm -hmm. at the Sorbonne. Um, there are Good faculties board. of study yeah, at, yeah. at Rice. Mm -hmm. However, uh, I think really the question is actually one that's, it, it, the answer is really kind of boring. Uh, I, I think it's actually looking at the ways in which universities structure themselves and what makes for not just the best kind of scholarship, but also, you know, frankly, what kind of education do graduate students need for employability? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I came from, you know, I was in graduate school in the 90s when we were all told that interdisciplinary degrees like folklore are going to be totally hot. Well, they're actually not as employable as I think that that many people would like, even though the, the potential for great scholarship is there in an interdisciplinary department. So I, what I would like to see would be that, yes, that there are still institutional homes for esoteric studies. I think that it's necessary in order to get the right kind of funding and the right kind of support. At the same time, I think people in esoteric studies as we have it now could use solid disciplinary bases. Mm. So maybe trying to find ways for people who are really solidly in departments like literature, history, religious studies, anthropology, to be able to come together and to fruitfully do work together, perhaps maybe at research centers, more than teaching centers mm -hmm. uh, that may not be very popular for some of my colleagues to hear but one of the things that i do find that can be a problem within esoteric studies and other small interdisciplinary fields is that sometimes uh, people cite each other so closely that they're not really looking outside that kind of very tight circle and they could use i think sometimes students could use a stronger disciplinary mm -hmm. foundation so i'd like to see a blend i'd like to see strong institutional homes where people can come together but i would like for this not to be marginalized i would like for it to be fine to study this in whatever department you want to come from mm. Even though it seems to be an increasing field, still it's a very marginal, as I say, and a very small group, actually. And you could almost cook in your own soup, as we say in Germany, you know, uh, because, yes. because everybody meets everyone again and again and again. That's yes. the danger, isn't it? It is. And, you know, I've, I've spent a, an academic lifetime in small fields. You know, mm. we'll probably soon talk about my background in Celtic studies. And that's yes. also a very small, small, extremely, certainly in the United States, extremely marginal field mm. that has a lot of trouble building bridges and finding support in any kind of institutional sense, which is deeply unfortunate because even though I'm not as allied with that field as I used to be in terms of, you know, going to conferences and publishing in their, in their journals, it's, it's still important. But they, they've really failed to, to get the kind of institutional 
I think gravitas that they need in order to in order to find support. And frankly, right now is a tough time for even major fields like religious studies making it in this environment. You know, the humanities across the board are really taking blows. So trying to find a way that that we can. Um, I think just find out what our constituency is within any form of scholarship. Who are we reaching out to? Who can we draw on to, to keep these enterprises together? I think it's going to be a critical question right now. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Well, you just cued it. You said we were going to speak about you. Yes, you're absolutely right. It's about time that we do that. But before we go to the Celtic studies and, and where you ended up, so to speak, at some point, um, where did you start? I mean, how did you become Amy Hill that you are today? <laughs> uh, what what was the the initiative that you took to to go in that direction? Did that start at a very young age or did you happen to think at age 18, what shall I do with my life? Oh, how did it all happen? <laughs> the truth is, Rudolph, I listened to a lot of Led Zeppelin. <laughs> That's what happened. Um, I was, when I was a teenager, I Stairway that, to heaven. So. <laughs> oh man, I was just obsessed with all of it. I mean, right. when I was when I was a girl, a young girl, I was very interested in in witchcraft. You know, like a lot of young girls um, in the 70s and 80s. But I wanted to I wanted spells. I wanted to know what people were doing. I mm -hmm. wanted to get in on that. The real and thing. I wanted the real thing. But, you know, and, and back in the 70s and the mid 80s, it was hard to find, especially in South Florida, where I grew up. It wasn't exactly easy to find information. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like I had the basic story of I spent all the time in the school library trying to, to you know, find things and doing a lot of reading. And uh, I, I thought when I started high school that I was going to get into instructional, not instructional design. Uh, that's what I ended up doing. Um, I, I was going to do industrial design. I, mm. I, oh, right. I liked commercial art. I was really into, mm. I'm not a great artist, but I like design. I like color. And uh, so I was going to do that. And one day in a very weird backward story, my parents sat me down when I was 16 and said, honey, what you want to do is be an anthropologist. That's what you need to do. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, I knew when I went into college that I wanted to go into Celtic studies in particular. And so I, my first degree was in anthropology. And then, uh, and I spent a year in, not a year, well, I spent a year writing my BA thesis. I went to an interesting school and my, I cut my teeth on, um, on Ireland. And so my BA thesis was actually looking at the role of mythology in contemporary Irish politics, nationalism, and economy. So that was what I did. Now, it's a good place to cut your teeth because we have a yeah, lot of sure. data and information on that. And it was 1989 when I did that. So it was right before they joined, you know, that the whole EU thing came mm -hmm. about. So it was a super interesting time to be looking at that. And then I went to graduate school. I went to folk, into the folklore and mythology department at UCLA. And I didn't want to do Ireland for my PhD. I was looking for something else. And I wanted to really get at the heart of 
what it is about the Celts that people find so magical. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of what we think of as Celtic necessarily, like the music of Clannad, which I absolutely adore, and there's this whole story about, you know, kind of the Celts as this European civilization kind of standing in contrast to the Roman Empire. And a lot of what we learn about the Celts actually isn't isn't true per se. But I wanted to know, how does it grab people? And in the mid 90s, maybe you recall, there was a huge Celtic Renaissance going on. Oh, yeah, definitely. It was massive. So I just hit right in the center of it. And I decided that I wanted to do my field work in Cornwall. And like so many people, I absolutely fell in love. You know, Cornwall, uh, I'm still loving it over 20 years later. It's interesting. The political situation there mm-hmm. is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, always has been issues of ethnicity, language revival, economic development. I love all that stuff. So you're thinking, okay, well, how, how did you, where does the occult come in? So in my view, if you are looking at how we define, like, how did we get this idea of what is Celtic in a popular sense, but also even in kind of a national sense, you end up having two competing conversations, sometimes competing, frequently competing. We talk about the, what ends up being kind of a nationalist discourse mm-hmm. of Celtic identities. And also it ends up being a spiritual discourse of Celtic identities. Sometimes those cross and sometimes those do not. Mm-hmm. But for me to do the kind of work that I wanted to do, particularly in Cornwall, um, I ended up looking at those two different streams of what it means to be Celtic. And sometimes like you get, you get, one symbol, like say King Arthur in Cornwall is, is a really great example mm. where you've got kind of nationalist stories about King Arthur, but you've also got this whole earth mysticism, Celtic Christianity, paganism, all sorts of different kind of interests and uses of King Arthur. Which is, very, which is very holistic and international, actually, exactly the opposite of nationalistic, right? Right. Well, I, I think that actually the view is like how those people interpret it has has some very perennial, um, mm-hmm. some very perennial aspects to it. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes those populations, particularly in Cornwall, are not the same population. Like the people who come down there because they love pagan spirituality yeah. <laughs> are not always the native Cornish, although yeah. sometimes they are as well. Yeah. Yeah. So those yeah. were the kinds of things that I was looking at. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to get to kind of go back to, you know, the, the very boring conversation about, you know, pro, uh, university kind of professional affiliations and things like that. I just found that the way that esoteric studies was developing as a field ended up being much more where I was at as a scholar. Mm-hmm. And so even though I do still consider myself a Celticist, I don't do the kind of scholarship that most other Celticists in the United States do. Mm-hmm. And so I was interested in having other kinds of conversations, especially as I was doing the Ethel Calhoun project. Mm-hmm. So that's really kind of how I, it's not a short story, but that's that's how I got to be uh, where I am today, really yeah. navigating my way through kind of 
weird, marginal, small disciplines. But hey, it's worked for me. <laughs> well, good and good for us because the results are fascinating. So um, when we say Celtic, just to make that clear, you spoke about Cornwall, so today's UK, etc. But of course, here in Europe, we speak, oh, and I don't have to tell you, but I tell the audience, Celtic is, of course, continental as well, not just French, but, but uh, Austria has Celtic parts, for example, my country here, right? Um, and they are even proud of it. But in a less nationalist, I would call that nationalist way that maybe the French or the, the, some parts of England would would be proud of it. But we are aware of that culture still. And, and as you say, altogether, we don't really know where they went and where they came from, do we? Yeah, I, I, I think, no, we, we really, we don't know what, I mean, there might be some people who would be very confident in talking about the origins and spread yeah. of of ancient Celtic civilizations. I'm not one of them. I tend to study a very modern experience. Uh, I, I would, however, say that that probably in a lot of places in Celtic continental Europe, what we tend to find are stronger remains of material culture mm-hmm. and design. And what we see the, where modern Celtic identities came from really emerged out of British colonialism and also French colonialism. But we get we, we see the relationship and correlation between particular language groups mm. and the rise of an understanding of minority cultures, both within the UK and also within France, Galicia as well. Um, although I'm not as clear on those politics and how uh, that has emerged, but really that's kind of the situation that that where we see our understanding of of Celtic peoples today. It's mm. really within the context of colonialism and colonial identities and those cultures and languages being marginalized. Right. Before we go to talk about your new book, um, I, I would like I would like to deepen a bit that question of uh, well, maybe maybe the Celtic the Celtic movement so to speak also in esotericism is something that is a good a good hint for that. Um, why is it that certain movements I would I would say certain movement but do correct me if you see that differently please um, certain movements within the esoteric and occult world of today of that small world that we move in um, are being used and I would say abused for certain political directions. Why does that happen? And um, because you just mentioned in, there is a, is a huge international openness, holistic part in the Celtic movement, so to speak, called in Celtic esotericism. Why, why does it happen that those two, two movements, let's call them like that, maybe you have a better term for it, compete in such an desperate way and sometimes really at a point where it becomes really unpleasant. So uh, you mean mostly kind of the some of the right wing things that we yes, see yeah, coming sure. in? Let's name it. Yes, exactly. So one thing that I, I want to stress is that within the people I know working now, these are the people I know who are working yeah. within sure. Celtic nationalist movements and Celtic uh identity movements within the UK in those territories. 
they're very strongly affiliated with left-wing politics mm-hmm. and with pluralism, and they self-identify as being very left-wing. I think one of the things that you see, however, are certainly here in the U.S., absolutely, probably also very likely in, in other parts of Europe, and absolutely in the UK, you get people who are using obviously Germanic, but also Celtic symbolism mm. and Celtic iconography as this way to talk about exclusion, to talk about, at the end of the day, uh, purity of culture. And a lot of this comes from really bad 18th and 19th century anthropology, where you get this idea that culture is something that it is inherited or transmitted genetically. Mm. And it's not. You know, so but we get this idea as, as people were trying to create taxonomies of people that well, obviously, people have distinctive cultures and languages, and they live on plots of land. So all of these things must be somehow organically tied together. And the idea that that uh, other people might come into these folds then would be seen as somehow corrupting or impure. Mm-hmm. Now, we know today that that's not true, and that's not how uh, how culture travels. But within, within occultism and, and within esoteric movements, we kind of get a blend of that happening with ideas of initiation, not that initiation is bad, but the idea of, of occult theories only being transmitted through an elite line of initiated people. Mm-hmm. And I think we kind of get this this blend of ideas of um, of kind of cultural what's the word I'm looking for cultural evolution kind of you know that 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 we get these ideas of of cultural evolution of hierarchies and that at the very top is a spiritual hierarchy where. You get these kind of priest kings and, and philosopher kings who are sitting at the top of it, who are the ones who are heir to the ancient wisdom mm. of a particular people. Who own it, you mean, also? So in yeah, 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 mm. yeah, yeah. You know, when these, these right-wing kind of imaginings of this golden age where peoples of the past where, and, you know, again, we'll probably, you know, we can talk about this in relationship to Ethel Calhoun, but a lot of people of her time and even today believe that peoples of the past, that the Celts in the past uh, were from Atlantis and that they were, the people of Atlantis were a magical people who were closer to the gods and closer to this golden age where everybody had access to the spiritual technology but through time, these ideas have been corrupted and people have been corrupted. And so we need to get people back into these hierarchies where the highest, most initiated priests can have access to this, this spiritual technology again. And uh, it's, it's highly romantic and for a lot of people, very, very compelling. Um, the, the messiness of the world is is uncomfortable for people but the fact is the world is is incredibly messy 
And, mm. uh, you know, I, I, I think that it's best if we if we cultivate our our way through negotiating that messiness mm-hmm. rather than trying to create orders that really never existed. Yeah. And I think I think to me, to me, the problem lies also in the fact of uh, of this make believe, you know, um, whatever whatever an order wants to do within themselves if it's within the moral within the moral context of course um is something but if you want to uh, use your power if there is power to to uh, to put your power above others that i think that there lies the real problem isn't it i think so and um you know i some people really enjoy that within uh, and the promise of that kind of power within say a magical order now frankly although I, I know that there are some some orders out there that are extremely hierarch- hierarchical mm-hmm. uh, the ones that I know of I don't really know a lot of magical mainstream magical orders mm-hmm. that are that are interested in that game but there are certainly individuals who who are and who want to kind of twist that that, that's what i mean that That, that, that's what i mean i think it's more the individual in a certain setting that creates the abuse rather than the setting itself Uh, yes absolutely absolutely i think that initiatory structures and hierarchical structures and that kind of Mm. esoteric training can be a really great and wonderful um and, and illuminating kind of experience to have but the way that that it what we see now in terms of the right wing's adoption of both pagan and occult themes i've i've been looking at this on and off for i mean it's always intersected my work for for 20 years it's intersected my work but i've Mm -hmm. really focused on it fairly heavily for 10 years Mm -hmm. and it is nothing like even a decade ago. I mean, the seeds were there, but the way in which people are are kind of appropriating and picking up on some of these, these elitist themes. I mean, it's not like they're not there within the occult world, but I think, you know, a lot of occultists I know aren't particularly interested in them, but there's a huge there's a huge group and subculture that is and uh and they're really they're i mean it's it's a thing when i started really looking at this within within the occult world a lot of it was very marginal but the way in which this has kind of gone mainstream it's uh shocking (laughs) do you think it's gone mainstream i i I, i'm not sure Uh, i i agree it's become stronger uh unfortunately and really unfortunately but but i'm not sure if if but that's probably not not the same everywhere either and 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 but and you are much more um into that i mean much more uh, versed and also researching it of course than i am yeah i, I think you have a point in that these occult ideas of of uh, you know the occult right are not necessarily mainstream yeah you know i don't think that every person on the streets is is going to be particularly versed in them however they have absolutely had an impact on how uh, on on social movements mm-hmm. you know we we do we do see the impact of these on policy on social movements and sometimes it's 
it's as small as how how it is that we understand culture what 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 do we how do we see the notion of identitarian movements yeah, how do sure. people talk about cultural purity how do people talk about going back to a golden age and these are things that we find across the board that are really impacting the political landscape. Now, of course, you get uh, these other subcultures within the alt-right that have been influenced by the new right. So you get kind of the memes and you get some of the stuff that's impacting, uh, like, say, eco-fascism, which has some links with contemporary paganism, within, with links with, uh, with, with occult authors. I mean, you do get that, absolutely. Um, but, you know, I don't think it's... I don't think that... that Every, I don't think it's something that everybody sees, but I think it's something that's there, and I think that the impact is is stronger than I I would have ever guessed. Yeah, I I think that those things are being that the occult world is partly being used by uh, as a means by the by the far right, uh, and it, it's uh, a real hermeticist, for example, cannot be politically. I neither far left nor far right. He, hmm. he, yeah, that's he interesting. Not, he is not. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a hermeticist. Uh, uh, the three are excluding the, each other, you know, in a way. Uh, and and I, I that's why I think mostly it's certain traits of occultism are being used and abused by the political movement of, of the far right. And I really hope that because this is you know probably some people's introduction like that for some people that's probably the face of esotericism and i don't want it to be yeah we, you know yeah, i don't we, want we, it to be we certainly agree on that yes absolutely i would i would really you know i would much rather have frankly people see beautiful Instagram witches and people's altars and herb bags and, you know, aspects of practice that they find uplifting and beautiful. I would much rather have that be somebody's introduction than this kind of thing, because we are, we are, we are also, I think in a, an incredible flourishing of of esoterica right now oh definitely I, and i think it's i think it's real i don't think that it's it's something that people are doing just for show on instagram although i am going to be making an instagram post about this interview later but i you know i don't <laughs> think i don't think that it's just it's not just that it's not something that that is is that that is just uh you know people say that that a lot of what's going on out there with within uh the kind of the visual occult let's put it uh, is is shallow and i don't think that it is mm. i think that there are real practices emerging that have real value for people and that it can be uplifting and enchanting and i would much rather see that be the face of yeah. any kind of of social, religious, or spiritual phenomenon yeah. than this ugly thing. But at the same time, I think it's very, very important that people within the communities, various communities, recognize it's there, recognize it's real, understand yeah. what the danger is, and understand how they can identify when how how they can identify it when they come into contact with it. 
you have to name the adversary in order to beat it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and because we want to show that face also, that's why we do such a podcast, for example, don't we? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, Amy Hale definitely has a lot of things to say and very interesting things. And I'm glad we have her here on the show. It's great to be with her. We had a really lovely talk together and I am glad about her openness and directness. So I promised you that we will perform another part or all parts actually of that music, that musical piece by David Yanni. And we are going to do so right away. It's now time for movements three and four of his The Cloud of Unknowing. And movement three and four are called Mysterious Cloud and Wings of Hope. So David Yanni, The Cloud of Unknowing.
David Yanni, The Cloud of Unknowing, those were Movements 3 and 4, Mysterious Cloud and Wings of Hope. Now let's return to meet Amy Hale and meet her in her home in Georgia, where we continue to speak. And I was going to ask her right away about her personal experience as an occultist and a scholar at the same time. Today, what does that mean? We've heard several opinions of different people in the last few weeks, and it's always interesting because everyone sees it a little bit differently. But in the end, we all come to the conclusion how important it is that scholars also have their own experience and active experience in the occult. Well, that was many, but maybe not all of them believe. It's certainly the belief of Amy, and she's going to talk about this a lot. And then we finally get to her new book and to Isol Calhoun, uh, that fascinating British artist of the 20th century. And uh, it will be will be really interesting to hear Amy talk about her directly. And you should go to the website, as I said, to find out more about Atul Gahun and especially about that book that Amy has just released. Right, so after the interview, as always, there will be the third piece of music today and you guessed it, it's going to be the last movement, movement five of The Cloud of Unknowing by David Yanni and that fifth movement is called timelessness. But now we go and meet again, Amy Hale. May I ask you a, a very personal question? You don't have to answer it if you don't want to. Are you are you still today uh, practicing anything in the occult world or, or uh, any any practice? I mean, are you still active or or no longer? Uh, I've I've always been an active member of the community. Mm -hmm. I have a number of different spiritual practices and traditions that I have worked with. Right. Um, I have been a uh, initiate initiated member of a Golden Dawn group. Mm -hmm. I have been um, a member of an initiated. Uh, I'm a, I have an initiated witchcraft practice. Mm -hmm. um, I also consider myself a KO. Uh, I hope I'm not going to regret saying any of this, although it's all pretty <laughs> much public information. Um, no, that's why know, I said it, you don't have to answer exactly. Yeah, yeah. but well, I think it's really important. I, I reflect on this a lot because it's not something that I write about as an academic. And I'm, I'm sort of hypocritical as an ethnographer in the sense that I don't come right out and say, yeah, this is the stuff I do because I'm, I'm not really writing about my traditions or practices no, at no. all. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not really as, as an ethnographer, uh, using that kind of subjective critical lens. If I were to, then I would absolutely do so. But, I, you know, in reading and in working with, say, particularly the Ethel Colhoun material or understanding when I'm writing about right wing stuff, uh, where my practice has come in handy is that I know the questions to ask. I know how to evaluate insider literature. I kind of know how to follow certain paths. And there are certain things that I probably have a better understanding of in terms of how to uh, how to unpack them, how, how to describe them than maybe somebody who didn't have that background. 
So I'm not I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of being an insider in 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 any of these communities. And you know, I think that I think that it's a good thing and I want to encourage this with anybody who is both a practitioner and a scholar to feel we should feel comfortable saying yes. this is what I do right. because I assure you if I needed to wear a suit and get up and look utterly professional I could rock that and it would have nothing to do with what my practices are yeah. and if I'm in a room with a religious studies scholar who's studying Islam and is also a Muslim I wouldn't bat an eye yeah, sure. Nobody yeah. would. Sure. So exactly. I think that we need to not be afraid to say what communities we belong to, how it is that that enriches our scholarship mm. and, and feel comfortable with having all of our colleagues take us seriously right. as a result of that. Right. Well, thank you for saying that. Because I... I had that discussion several times here. Richard Kaczynski, who you probably know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. he said something very funny. He said, it's like if somebody who studies theology wouldn't be allowed to be a Catholic, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And he's so right. And I'm happy you made that statement because uh, I asked that question already several times on the show here. And and it's the different aspects of answers that we get. It's, it's very important. And I, I think I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more on that, what you said. I think I, I do want to make the point, though, because it's something that we deal with a lot in pagan studies, and I've written about this, too, is that although I, I am part of these various spiritual and religious communities, I think it's important as scholars that we know when to talk about and how to talk about our practice and be really aware of when we're making truth claims and when we shouldn't be making truth claims. Yes. I am not a theologian. I don't write from a theological perspective. And if we do want to be taken seriously, we need to know when we're using our theological voice and when we're not using our theological voice. Mm -hmm. And there's a little, sometimes a little bit too much confusion about that certainly within pagan studies, but also in esoteric studies. You know, we want our subjectivity to be something that's a plus. We want that yeah. to be a benefit. Yeah. We don't want that to be something that, uh, we don't want to be sloppy in our scholarship. Right. Is, really isn't important. that the key to the humanities studies altogether? It is. Yeah. I think it absolutely is. Mm. And you know, I, I think I, I think we we need to know. I think we need because yeah, sure, the bias is still there. I mean, I think it's getting better, but yeah, the bias is absolutely still there. That certainly to, is. Yeah, we need to be perhaps hotter, more sound, more in control of our methodologies than anybody else. Yeah. I think you know. I think we do need to go out there, and yeah, if that means that we need to be twice as awesome, then we need to be twice as awesome. Yeah. I mean, you are very outspoken about it, but still you had a little hesitation in the beginning, you know, and that's, that, show, that shows immediately what yeah. the problem is. Exactly. Yeah. It's awkward. It, it's, it's awkward for me because while I don't hide it, I'll be honest, I think you're probably the first person in any of the podcasts that I've done yeah. who's, who's come, come straight out with it. And mm. I, you know, I, anybody can find this out about me online, yeah. but I also... I don't even talk about the, 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 my spiritual practice to my closest friends because it's a, it's a very, 
it's a very personal part of me. Yeah, However, exactly. having said that, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not, you know, I think that yeah. it enhances my studies. I couldn't have written the book that I just wrote or frankly done any of the research that I did if I didn't have access to that kind of, to those communities, yeah. to that kind of information and to those readings, yeah. you know, the, the interpretative, the, uh, the interpretive yeah. readings yeah. of that material. I, I, I can assure you, it's that. not only a problem in the academic world. I I come from the arts, not from, from the performing arts world. Uh, and as long as I was really very active there as a leading person in my country here, I wouldn't have spoken too much about being an occultist neither. So it's 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 still. But as you say, there are certain things in life you don't speak about sexuality, about political things, about religion right. to anyone in the world, in the street. So it's just normal. It's part of that, right? It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And yeah. And, and thank you. Thank you for being willing to kind of uh, talk me through that and to say, yeah, OK, this is uncomfortable. But, you know, there's 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 really I, I don't I'm not in the closet about yeah. it. Well, well, thank you for talking about it. Thank <laughs> you. you just gave me the next cue once again. And now, finally, let's go to the book. Let's go to. Well, I tried to pronounce it once again correctly. It's a column. You can that much better. Uh, then if you don't recognize the book because the name is spelled completely different <laughs> then it's pronounced it's because it's a celtic a gaelic celtic gaelic name actually a scottish name um so um well you you tell us first because honestly before i had the pleasure well i knew from you that you were writing a book about about her about the artist she was a british artist um, surrealist i think she was also a writer a poet and um before i before you told me you would write that book i had never heard that name to be honest and i think i'm not the only one uh, and now i had the pleasure to read a preview of the book um, and uh, thank you for that uh, while we do this interview the book is not been released yet but when we release this interview it will have been released we are just about it's just about to happen actually well, it's done it's out it is done already it okay. is out okay. yes great so it this early. interview will be out in two weeks so anyway it'll it'll be all new and fresh um, so um, let me do, do tell us first of all who is Isel Calhoun and then how you found out about her and why it was so important for you to write about her well the, the first sentence of the book is it's pronounced Ithel because in all of the years that I've worked with her, there I've heard so many different people pronounce her name, and I figured, you know, I think I'm just going to clear this up right off the bat. <laughs> well, so done. I, um, I, my goal, and again, it's it's kind of very typical of of her that you know I, she'd be a household name if her name weren't so darn difficult to pronounce, but she never did anything easy. Or I, uh -huh. she, she, uh, she, she was not. She, she was. She, she was not a, a surface human being. And so I, I, my, my line about her, I believe that the more I read, the more I think it's true. I think that she was the most engaged and interesting female occultist of the 20th century. And that's pretty hard because, boy, there, we got a lot of them out there. Mm -hmm. And some stories that are now being, you know, we're learning more about the, the, the women occultists of the 20th century. But Ithel was just 
a powerhouse in every sense of the word. Uh, I heard about her first when I was working as a lecturer at the University of Exeter. Mm -hmm. I was working at the Institute of Cornish Studies and I was having lunch at a friend's house and my friend who was in charge of the West Cornwall Art Archive said to me, hey, have you looked into Ethel Colhoun? All of her material is at the Tate. I was like, who? And I'd done my PhD at this point, and I had absolutely, I had not heard of her. Oh, yeah, she wrote this book, The Living Stones, and she was into witchcraft and druidry. She'd be right up your alley. And I was like, wait, what? So I asked my boss to give me some money to go up to London for a week. And at this point, none of her archives had been uh, in any way cataloged. And I go into this in the book, as you know. When approximately would that, would it, was that? This was in 2000, okay. in the year 2000, when I was, was still living over there. And so I went up to London and they, I said, uh, can I see her stuff? And they just wheeled out like 26 or 27 cardboard boxes and said, have at it. And... There were letters to Doreen Valiente in there and all sorts of capitalistic drawings and poems and correspondence with everybody. And my mind was blown. I said, oh, my God, this is a gold mine. This is incredible. I'd never seen anything like it. And uh, I knew that that she was going to end up being a really big part of my life at that stage. And I came back to the States in 2001 and, you know, life has its twists and turns. And so I wasn't able to really pick it back up until about 2007 when I started going back and forth between the U.S. and the U.K. and spending weeks in the Tate archives and in her archive, which was at the National Trust, where there were over 5,000 different pieces Those have now been donated to the Tate. So the Tate has her entire collection. Mm -hmm. And I think it is being called the largest working surrealist artist archive in the world. Mm -hmm. I may be wrong on that, but I heard somebody say it that because she kept everything. She kept all of her writings and all of her drafts and even the scraps of paper that she used to make other pieces of art with. She, her output was staggering. So it wasn't just 5,000 pieces of art. It was unpublished novels and poems and plays and short stories. And it's absolutely remarkable. Um is is um, what does it what does it in, in European make it so different from others? I mean, uh, surrealism is a movement in the 20th century which has always had a link to the occult, uh, but um, and there are many, uh, so to speak, surrealists. Maybe not of all, all of them are really surrealists but around. But what, in your point of view, makes her? such a special artist and occultist. What's the special link there? Well, I see Colhoun's surrealism as being an expression of her occultism rather than the other way around. She was an occultist first. And when she discovered surrealism and particularly started getting into automatism in 1939, mm -hmm. that's when we really see how surrealism becomes the engine 
for her occult studies and for her occult work. I think her absolute commitment to hermeticism is, as a practitioner, makes her very different, certainly from a lot of the other surrealists that we see who have had an engagement with with the occult and the esoteric. We see her practice. She writes about her practice. The other thing that is is kind of different from, say, a Leonore Carrington, mm-hmm. whose work is just absolutely gorgeous. Carrington, uh, she her work is is figurative, and a lot of the surrealists that were engaging with the cult, the occult tended to do more representational, dreamlike work. Right. Her most surrealist pieces were not figurative. So we don't see occult art as something where we're looking at trying to interpret symbols or meanings. She's basically trying to give you the direct hit. So for instance, in, in with her tarot cards, with the deck out of intelligence, which I think were, uh, they were in the last decade of her life, I think they were some of the pinnacles of her, her automatic art. Mm-hmm. She's trying to get you to have a direct experience of entities through color. That's what she's trying to do for you. You're not supposed to, you know, you're not de- decoding anything. You're getting it. You're, right. you're getting the main line. And I think that's something that makes her really different. It was her emphasis on technique and how that interplayed with all of the other theoretical work she was doing. Her work uh, in that respect, those things that I saw in the book, of course, I can only speak about them. Um, they hit me directly because in a way they have so much in common. I don't know if, if I can explain that correctly, but uh, have so much in common with old alchemical drawings, for example, which are also very direct when you know a little bit about the symbolism and you know to decode the colors and everything. And the same happened to me when I saw her painting, for example. Um, would you would you agree on that? Or is that a, pers- a very personal impression only? No, and I think that, that uh, even when she wasn't doing things that were particularly emblematic, I think that's what they were designed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, alchemy was a huge love of hers, especially yes. early on. Yeah. And it goes, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to read any of her um, any of her works like Goose of Hermogenes, no. which it's so again, it's it's not it's not the easiest read. You know, she was she was not big on driving plot motivation. But the way that I believe it was supposed to work was you're supposed to be like ingesting the movements of archetypes. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be not necessarily relating to characters, but it's it's sensory. It's almost like like looking at a tonka. Mm-hmm. reading some of her writings because mm-hmm. it's very descriptive, it's very colorful. And you're supposed to engage with the, the emblem rather than with a person acting of their own volition. These people are are they're almost clockwork in what they're doing. And I think that this is similar to a lot of, of, of her work. She was trying to contact and engage with these big cosmic forces. Is any of her literary work at the moment available, published and available? 
Oh, goodness, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So Peter Owen, which was the company who originally did uh, her her novels, and, well, they did Goose of Hermogenes, and then they did her travelogues, Crying of mm-hmm. the Wind, Ireland, and Livingstone's Cornwall. They originally published those works, and right. they have reissued those in nice volumes. Um, I'm, I would love to also recommend my friend and colleague, uh, Richard Shillito, who really, I think, pioneered the Ethel Colquhoun's comeback. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's incredible. And he put together recently a collection called Medea's Charms, which was one of her own titles for an autobiography or collection of some of her writings. Mm-hmm. And he's done a collection of many of her poems, her short stories, some of her kind of weirder essays. So that's out also through Peter Owen. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard has also done a version of one of her novels called I Saw Water. So all of these are, are available. Yeah, and some of these, they've just, Medea's Charms is a fairly recent publication, and I would love to recommend it. It's actually probably a good companion with, with, uh, with my book, Jean right. Fern Loved Gully, because you can, you'll, be, you'll get to, to read the fuller yeah. uh, versions of some of the things I refer to. Right. And also, also, I will also make sure that the links to where those, where your book, of course, and also where, where those books can be, can be made available. Uh, I will put those links also in the show notes, of course, of, of this show. Um, do you, do you know, is there any plans that the Tate will maybe make uh, an exhibit of, of her, of her work in the near future? Is there anything that would be planned? Uh, any idea about that? Uh, I, I know that things are planned, but I don't know what the dates are or what the exhibition is going to look like. I right. think it's probably a number of years down the road now, but mm. they have got so much to work with with the archive. Not only do they have some really lovely finished pieces, but all of her incredible magical experiments which is something that I'm now, this is my next project is I'm actually doing an annotated book on her, some of her magical writings and some mm-hmm. of her other magical experiments mm-hmm. because they're so deep and, and rich. Right. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, how would you personally, with that experience in mind, but you, you as Amy Hale, how would you define the relation between arts and magic? I, I tend to think that the thing that I love about um, looking at magical art is considering how it is an artifact of practice. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I discuss in the book and that we kind of were touching on even at the beginning of this interview is how we can now really look at esoteric art in a very different way maybe in the past 10 years, as we're starting to take into account art as being not just part of the practice of the artist, but also something that can impact in whatever way the consciousness of the person who is viewing the art. Mm -hmm. I also think that magic itself, as the practice of magic, has a very artful and creative quality to it. Even if you're doing a ritual that you've done a hundred times before. I think that you are tapping into not just images 
but also you're tapping into experiences, you're tapping into sensations. And it's, it's, it's a creative process. It's a very embodied process. And I'm excited about art that gives us a taste of that. And I think ritual is something that can also bring us to some of those incredibly creative states. Whether you take it from a devotional perspective or an animistic perspective or an ecstatic perspective, mm. I, I think that, that it, it's all part of the same journey. What I often find a bit strange is that there is, seems to be made that separation between arts being the visual arts and performing arts. Maybe mm. that's maybe because I come from the performing arts world, but uh, both are arts and it's art altogether. And especially when you talk about ritual, I think the combination of visual arts and performing arts is a perfect link, which leads to magic, actually. Um, would you would you agree on that? I, I would. I would. And um, so I've also done some research and some writing with Barry William Hale. Are you familiar mm -hmm. with Barry William mm -hmm. Hale? Yeah, by name, vaguely, yes. Mm. I, I, I call him Cousin Barry. Uh, sure, and <laughs> so he's he's an incredible artist who does, uh, he, he comes from a Thelemic background, but he also does work in, in Mexican visual traditions and in other native visual traditions. And he's an accomplished martial artist. And if you get an opportunity to see a show of his not only is his visual art incredible but his performance art which is ritual itself mm. is dynamic it's somatic and i wanted to study and work with him on some projects because i saw a performance of his in seattle many years ago now probably 10 And it was so effective. Mm. It just knocked me out. And I looked at the audience. I mean, they were like zoned out within five minutes. Mm. Like, okay, <laughs> this dude is awesome. And oh, yeah. I want to know what he's doing. So talking to him about his process and what he's doing with some of his symbolism, it's been a really great insight into that exactly that thing that you're talking about. Right that intersection between visual arts and performance. And if I can share something from my own kind of strange background. So in addition to, you know, being kind of a weird occultist myself, I'm also a barbershop singer. Oh, right. Now, I haven't I haven't been able to do this since I moved to Atlanta, sadly. Um, but I'm a third generation barbershop singer. And when I talk to people about the experience of standing there singing in the middle of a very tight acapella chord with 150 other women, like in a semicircle, and what that feels like, it is as high as any kind of other ritual I can imagine oh, i'm sure definitely and if you're if you come from a performance art background then mm. you probably get the intersection of that kind of physicality yeah yeah and that definitely and i mean this now goes too far but i i i always find that music in all kinds of music from classical through through jazz to rock whatever can have exactly the same magical effect that you just describe because it's energy 
and it's it's uh, it's yeah it's waves you know it's and, waves uh, exactly. exactly it's vibrations it's yeah. vibrations and yeah. you know standing there with a bunch of of women who oh you know who who have probably you know probably not the most esoterically inclined group but using visualization using vibration using the, many of using breathing mm-hmm. many of the techniques that are absolutely you would find in various esoteric contexts in this in this in this one place you know it's i think it's a really good for me synthesis of how that kind how how ritual and magic lives in the body and that's something that that is really important to me not only as a practitioner but also as as a theorist yes and as a person right mm-hmm. yeah exactly um there have been lately a few very nice uh, occult conferences i just remember the magical women's conference in london or the occulture in berlin where such kind of performances took place and they they were a big proof of what you just and what we just said here right right i would love to go sometime to the uh, to the one in berlin it looked yeah. the performances it, 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 just we have we have covered amazing. it last time with this with this with this uh, podcast we covered it and we're going to do the same i think it's been pushed now to to the spring 21 of course because of corona but um, but um, it's definitely worth worth the trip absolutely oh yeah absolutely. yeah it's it's it, it's it's something that's a It's on my bucket list for sure. Yeah, great. Uh, maybe we meet there one day. <laughs> well, Amy, we are coming to the end of our interview. Before we have to leave you, uh, you already mentioned one of your future plans briefly about the sequel on your work with with Isal Colhoun. But maybe other projects that you would uh, tell like to tell us about what we should look out for and be happy to see them appear f- uh, soon. Sure. Thank you. Uh, so I am very excited to be working on a collection of academic pieces. I'm editing something for Paul Grave with some amazing scholars. It is going to be a collection looking at women in the Western esoteric tradition, mm-hmm. but with also a focus on women's scholarship. So it's not exclusively women scholars. There are a couple of, of guys who are in there, but it's mostly women scholars looking at women and women's history and some maybe some women you've never heard about. Georgia is one of the contributors to this mm-hmm. volume. So there's some very cool stuff in there. All right. Um, so I'm doing that. I'm working on this other piece where I'm editing some of Eithel's amazing magical essays. So, you know, I spent this morning with a bunch of clefothic demons, as you do. And uh, then after that, I really want to do a my big project on Cornwall. I really want to get right. back and look at at the magical history of Cornwall. Well, that sounds exciting. Well, keep us posted, Amy. I will. I will. Thank you. Great. Well, thanks for being with us here today. That was a lovely talk. Thank you for your openness and your and your direct answering. Um, thanks for your time. And well, I wish you best of luck for all your projects and stay healthy and safe, as we say those days. And thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for the opportunity, Rudolf. I've really enjoyed our chat today. And you stay healthy and safe, too. Thank you, and have a good day now. You too.
This was the last movement of the Cloud of Unknowing by a Luxembourg composer and listener to the Thoth Hermes podcast, David Yanni. And that movement was called Timelessness. I would really like to thank Amy Hale for her openness for the way we were able to talk about all those very different and very interesting matters. Um, it was a very, very good experience for me to talk to her, and I hope you had the same experience by listening to our talk. Um, thank you, Amy, and uh, I hope we'll meet again one day on this show. Right, so this is the end of episode 8 of the season 5 of the Thought Harmonies podcast. It was a pleasure for me to have you with me once again this week on our show. And I hope you will return next week on September the, what is it? September the 6th it is already. My goodness. September 6th will be um, our episode 9. And well, I think this time I can say very confidently this will be an Ex Libris show next time. I told you that we are refurbishing ex libris a little bit that takes a bit more a little bit more of time than i thought i had already planned one in august um, well earlier in august than today but had to push it once again i hope you won't mind and i hope that all the episodes are equally interesting for most of you so that's a good sign i see it by the figures by the download figures that you seem to like what we're doing here well, once again, if you like what we're doing here, why don't become a patron and s stop that talking about becoming a patron that I do all the time. <laughs> okay. Right. So Ex Libris next week, uh, I and Ursula, we will present uh, five books to you if all goes well and also a musician. And um, it'll be an interesting bunch of people and books in that slightly changed and extended format of Ex Libris that we have planned for this season five. Let's see what will be the outcome. Right. Well, for today, I think the only thing that I can say is once again, thank you. I wish you all help and sa health and safety, which is really necessary in those days. And then I can only say, take care. Stay tuned, hear you soon.